Oh, yeah, I like that one. Uh, that's uh, a. What is that, that? Richard? Do you think? Um, that's an, uh, is that an Irish wolfhound? A golden oh. doodle. That is so not an Irish wolfhound. <laughs> <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I took Ray out for a stroll on Hampstead Heath with a man you'll be very familiar with. I'm going to go TV legend, Richard Maidley. Richard doesn't really need an introduction, but here you go. He's a TV presenter, journalist, author. He runs Britain's most successful book club and he's a newspaper agony aunt. But you'll know him best from his incredibly long running and successful TV partnership with his wife, Judy Finnegan. Richard is incredibly good company and he's refreshingly candid. He said at the beginning, you can ask me anything you want. And he was right. He opened up about his childhood, his first marriage, his dad's sudden untimely death, and he told me all about his relationship with Judy and how they fell in love. Richard doesn't have a dog himself. He said he'd have an issue with the poo, and I can't argue with the man. But he was very sweet with Ray, and the most exciting thing of all, I got to go into Richard and Judy's actual house. I loved spending time with Richard, and now I know where he lives, I'm moving in. Their kids have left home. They could accommodate a lodger easily. Do check out Richard and Judy's book club in conjunction with WH Smith. They have some brilliant recommendations and it's Britain's biggest book club. Anyway, I'll stop talking. Here's Richard. Right, we're going to go, Richard. Yes, let's go. You've got a door, <sighs> so you've got, look at this, draft excluder. Oh, vital. The wind howls in across the heath. It really pulls it down. Shall I put Ray down? Do you think I should put his lead on now? Are we going over there? Going over there, yeah. Okay. I don't carry him all the way, Richard. Well, I'll tell you what we should do. We should walk on the pavement all the way down, and there's a footpath that cuts across, and we can do a, do, do a, do a circuit. Lovely. Let's cross over. Let's cross over. Oh, look, there's already some other dogs. Oh, it's, it's dog walkers' paradise here. How old? Oh, Richard, you didn't ask a lady her age. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Go on, how old is he? He's three. Three. <laughs> and he's called Raymond. Because I wanted an old man's like pub name. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm with the very marvellous Richard Maidley. You just, did you say harmless or marvellous? I didn't catch that. <laughs> well, I can vouch okay, for harmless, you being marvellous. Harmless is probably better. Probably Are more you, accurate. You strike me as fairly harmless. Mostly harmless, yeah. Okay. And we're in, I won't specify exactly where, but in case any burglars are listening, <laughs> but we're in uh, a lovely part of North West London. And you've lived here a long time? We've lived here for a, well, well over 20 years. I mean, I'm a Londoner, kind of born and bred. Actually, I was born in, I was born in Essex. I was born in Romford. Yeah. But for some reason, though, everybody calls it East London. Raymond? <laughs> Do you have to wait for Raymond? Is this going to happen a lot? He's standing in the middle of the road. Raymond, come, come on. Come on, Raymond. Raymond, come on. I don't think he thinks I'm harmless. He's giving me some very odd looks. <laughs> Maybe you should carry him. Do you think I should, yeah, I think you should, yeah. Can I ask what your attitude to animals is? Because I've brought oh. my dog Raymond because you don't have pets, do you? No, we don't have pets because I suppose we're too selfish. It, I mean, you know, we've got lots of kids and they're a handful, even when they're grown up. Um, and I, I mean, I like dogs. I really, really like them. Most breeds. Very few breeds I don't like. Uh, but if we had a dog, you know what it's like. I mean, it's a complete tie, isn't it? Mm. It would make travelling difficult. We'd make. I know you can put them in kennels, but I don't like that. I don't like the thought of. Them. Do you put? Do you put him in kennels? I find nice people that can look after okay. him. There's a place called the Country Dog Hotel, which is essentially like the Soho farmhouse for dogs, <laughs> and they pick them up, and <laughs> okay. no, no humans are allowed there. And also, although I'm not particularly squeamish about anything, I don't really want to several times a day have to pick up dog shit. <laughs> 
I just don't want to do it. You know, it's, 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 I know I'd get used to it, like changing a nappy on a, on a baby, but I don't really want to. So, um, <laughs> like I say, it's, it's selfish. But I, I know if I did, if I inherited a dog or yeah. one came into my life, I know that I wouldn't be talking like this. Right. I wouldn't be thinking like this. I know it would be great. I understand that. And did the kids ever put pressure on you when they were growing up to get pets? Because you know what kids are like with, oh, can we get a puppy? Or, or was that not really a I, thing for them? Well, I think... I think when kids know the way their parents are going to respond, they, they, I mean, they learn pretty quickly that there are some things that's just a waste of time arguing for. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and arguing for a dog, which I can't even remember them doing, yeah. they must have done, they must have done, um, would have got this kind of complete blank, no, we're not doing it. Um, and they would have just moved on to something else, like can I have a computer. And did you have dogs growing up? Yeah, we had, uh, had a dog called Prince, who was uh, a collie, uh, kind of the lassie breed, yeah. um, who was completely, I know people say this about their dogs, but he was completely insane and he was totally untrainable. Uh, my mum spent a fortune going to dog obedience classes with him. Really? We just cut across the heat oh, here. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, he, he wouldn't sit, he wouldn't come, he wouldn't fetch. He wouldn't do anything that dogs are supposed to do. He just ran around in tight circles barking. <laughs> and, w and whenever we took him out for a walk, yeah. we learned quite quickly, you couldn't let him off the lead. Because the moment you unclipped his lead, he'd just run away. Oh, talking of which, I might let <laughs> Raymond off the lead. Come on. Yeah, because... Um... He, he would just run away and he would disappear for a day. And then it was always the same thing. We'd hear a scrabbling at the front door at the end of the day as it got dark. And mum would go and open the door. And he'd be there absolutely black with foul-smelling mud. He'd, he'd found some sewer farm or something, and he'd always go there and he'd come back. And mum would have, you know what college is like, the long yeah. hair breed. It would take her ages to clean him up. Uh, so in the end, they gave him away. Oh, really? Yeah. He sounds like a really bad boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Coming home covered in shit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So um, your childhood, hmm. I'm particularly fascinated by because you wrote a book called Fathers and Sons hmm. a few years back, and I really loved it. Oh, thank you. And I think what I loved about it is it wasn't a traditional autobiography. It was actually about tracing, sort of making connections in families and how sort of, um, in a way, damage can be passed down. Yes. And you have the power to stop that when you recognise it. That's it's, how I saw it. You've got it in one. That's, exa yeah. that's exactly right. Since I became the agony aunt for the, uh, the Daily Telegraph on Saturdays, took over from Graham Norton when he packed it in, um, it's, it's shown me something which I, I kind of knew for a long time. It's very basic Freudian yeah. thinking, really. But it is that, you know, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. Yeah. Um, and so many of the problems that I get in my post bag are clearly rooted in childhood. Not all of them, yeah. but, but most, most of the emotional problems are rooted in childhood and in upbringing. Um, which doesn't mean to say that, that parents should cop the blame for everything, but... You, you've got to be able to, to trace it back and analyse it. And that's what I did with fathers and sons. I mean, my grandfather was uh, called up in the First World War and had a horrible time, as they all did. He was in France for nearly three years. He lost part of a foot, lost his hearing. Mm. And it, like with so many men of that generation, it totally fucked him up. Yeah. And he came home and shut up about it, hardly ever spoke about it. But that was all part of a general sort of repression. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, I was watching uh, Rocket Man, you know, the Elton Jotman. Oh yeah, did you like it? I thought it was terrific. Yeah, yeah. it was really good. Yeah. Um, all of it. I liked all of it. Um, and you see how Elton John's middle years, well, youth and then middle years, almost till now, were completely screwed up yeah. by having a father who wouldn't give him a hug. Uh, his mother was obviously horrible. Yeah. Um, and 
it drove him into this incredible spiral of basically self-abuse. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the sense of drugs, not onanism. Um, and that was because of his mum and dad. Well, he's a bit frightened. I might just pick him up. Hello, sweetheart. This is a very big... Uh, is this it's an Alsatian? It's just because it's big and he gets frightened, yeah. It's a beautiful Hello. Alsatian. I wasn't being rude picking him up. He just gets a bit frightened. They look lovely dogs, though. What's that? Is that an Alsatian? He's not quite an Alsatian, is he? He's too shaggy for an Alsatian. Yeah. Look at this one, Richard. He's got a bit of Belgium in him, though. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks amazing. What's the oh, call? Oh, he's trying to give you a stick, Richard. Come here. What's he called? Caesar. Caesar, yeah. Yeah, he would be, wouldn't he? He's such a Caesar. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's big too, isn't he? And a Titus as well. You got a Titus? Oh, very Roman. Hello. Titus the Dalmatian, great. Are they twins? No. No. They're actually two different families. Are they? Cool. So you're either real dog lovers or you run a dog walking business? I think you run a dog walking business. We do as well, but we're not doing as well. Okay, take. Oh, I like that one. Uh, that's uh, what's what that, Richard? Do you think? Um, that's an, uh, is that an Irish Wolfhound? He is a uh, golden doodle. A golden doodle? Oh. Yeah, but he's quite a big. That is so not an Irish Wolfhound. <laughs> <laughs> but he looks like an Irish Wolfhound. He, he looks does. like he should be an Irish Wolfhound. Okay. Bye bye, nice to meet you. Oh, look, the Schnauzer's following us, Richard. Hello. The Schnauzer's nice taking Schnauzer. a fancy to Richard Maidley. Oh. Do you like that, by the way, the encounter with people? Oh, what? very much. Do you? Yeah, yeah. It's one, I think it's one of the reasons I became a reporter. You're um, quite sociable, aren't I'm you? Very so, I'm very sociable. I'm very interested, in, genuinely interested in people, which sounds like self-praise, but it's, it's not. It's just a statement of, of truth. Um, I, I, it's very hard to bore me. Um, <laughs> I wanted to go back to what you were saying, because I found it interesting about that childhood thing, because in your book, um, I was really... I couldn't believe it's the most heartbreaking sort of Dickensian story about your grandfather, oh, yes. who was essentially abandoned by his family, your great grandparents. Well, that's the, basically it was uh, it was around about the turn of the century, the nineteenth to twentieth century, uh, and obviously this is years before my grandfather's experiences in the trenches, which you know didn't help. What happened was uh, his his father. I think he was one of. My grandfather was one of six children, and his father uh, ran a drapery business uh, in Warwickshire, and he went bust. Mm. And he went to, uh, to see his brother, who, who lived with his sister on a farm in Shropshire, a very remote farm Kiln in Shropshire. Farm. Kiln Farm, well remembered, yeah, uh, to ask for a loan. And the guy said, uh, I won't loan you anything, but what I suggest is you emigrate to Canada, and I will uh, give you the money for the fares for everybody, but I want to keep one child to work on the farm. And the perfect child for that was my granddad because he was just about old enough yeah. to, uh, to be useful. He was, I think he was seven or eight. So he could start you know, carrying stuff around and doing work. And my grandfather, my, his uncle would, would get a good lifetime, you know, sort of young life's work out of him. So I think, he, I think the deal was he'd had to stay on the farm until he was 21, but nobody told my grandfather this. So didn't so, he just wake up and everyone had gone? Yeah, they, they, they left their place in Warwickshire for Liverpool to get the boat to, to uh, Canada. My grandfather thought he was going with them. How old would he have been? Seven or eight. My grandfather thought he was going with everyone. They all thought, other than his parents, that he was coming too. Uh, they, they overnighted in Shawbury, the little village in Shropshire. Uh, and my grandfather woke up alone. Uh, he'd, got, he'd gone to bed in a big feather bed with several of his brothers, and they'd all crept away in the night. And all the baggage was gone, yeah. and only his bags were left in the corner of the room. It was daylight, and there's no one, no one there. So he thought they must be downstairs having breakfast or something. And he ran downstairs, nobody there except his uncle, mm. old sort of whiskered, mutton-chopped Victorian figure, 
and this spinster sister, mm. and they basically told him his fortune without any pity yeah. or sympathy or warmth. They simply said, right, this is the deal. They've gone. Uh, and you're staying for the next, well, 13 years, 14 years. Uh, and then, you know, if you work hard, yeah. we'll send you to Canada, but you won't see them for 14 or 15 years. I'm br absolutely brutal. It's like, it was like something out of Les Miserables. Oh, it, you it, know? it is, it's like, yes, you're it absolutely It really right. was, and I just felt what was fascinating was looking at how your grandfather, who'd also lost a, a son, um, which it felt like that was never spoken about. John, yes. John and your uncle, I guess, who you would have never have met. But yes. obviously, but that, but it felt like that was how those men in your family, that was their coping mechanism, was to shut down yes. and not allow vulnerability. And then your dad, to a certain degree, he was sent away to boarding school. Yep. And it was fascinating seeing how that, that sort of sins of the father, in a way, was yes. handed down. And... I was interested to know, just chatting to you now, like your, your mum sounds like this very glamorous, she was from Canadian and mm -hmm. she was an actor, wasn't she? Uh, she? She was an amateur actress in Canada, yeah. 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 Was she very sort of beautiful and I yes. imagine, was she? Yeah, she was a very, very attractive woman, my mother, and very vivacious. And I think she was undoubtedly the person who, who broke that, that trail of uh, disappointment and sadness. Um, and you know a sense of being unloved. Yes. Mum changed that completely. He, she changed it for my father first of all. She loved him completely, and, mm -hmm. it, and she was the first woman in his life or person in his life ever to properly love him, because his parents were very distant. His own mother was very distant. Yeah. Um, so he felt loved for the first time in his life. A bit, a bit like Elton John and David Furnish. Yes, Elton yeah, John yeah. goes through life looking for love because of his parents. Finally finds it with David Furnish, and 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 the sun comes up in the morning. You know? Yeah. So yeah. that was good, wonderful for Dad. Your dad was a reporter, wasn't he, yes. originally? And then I got the sense that he ended up working for Ford in mm -hmm. Dagenham, yep. and that's when you guys relocated to Essex. But I felt, I don't know, it was interesting. I wondered how he'd felt about, I know he died, obviously, when you were quite young. You were 21, weren't you? Do you think you had a sense of your dad feeling that he hadn't really pursued the path he wanted? That's a very good question. Um... I think he was definitely, I think his horizons were definitely limited mm. by the emotional privations of his childhood. Mm. By being, I mean, being sent away at 14 or 15 is very late to be sent to boarding school. Mm. Um, I mean, most kids start and prep and they, they adapt to it as their lives unfold. But dad went when he was a kind of a freedom loving 15 year old, but during yeah. the war and it was pretty brutal. And I think that definitely screwed him up for a very long time. He felt utterly betrayed by his parents. Um, they gave him no choice in, in, in the issue, and it was a very harsh school. It's a good school now, it's called Denston in Staffordshire, but at the time, in the, in the war, he used to tell me terrible stories about it. And a, a, a tremendous bullying and pretty savage Dickensian-type discipline. Yeah. And, you know, for, for a, a boy who was having fun, went, went, went to Wem Grammar School, day boy, in, enjoying life, suddenly got girlfriends for the first time, to be suddenly transported, for reasons which were never actually made clear. It was never clear why it happened. Your childhood, I mean, would you have described it as happy? Were you a happy child? Was it a happy home? I, th I think so, yeah. Um, it was, like all family life, it was, I suppose, quite complicated. My dad was prone to sudden outbursts of great temper, mm. uh, and he could be violent. Um, he, in a sort of semi-disciplined way, not with his fists or anything like that, but... You know, he produced a bamboo cane, and he'd cane me with that sometimes. Not, again, in a ritualised, fetishistic way, but, you know, just three or four hard whacks, you know, on the upper thigh or, 
anywhere really. Um, but and you had a sister, and was it Elizabeth, just you yeah. that he would? Yes, yes, it was just me. Why and do you think that was? Um, probably a sense of old-fashioned sort of pseudo chivalry. I don't know that you didn't hit women, you didn't hit girls. He certainly never hit my mother yeah. ever. Um, and he wasn't he wasn't what I would define well by the standards of the day as a violent man. He wasn't. He didn't get into fights. He's to say he didn't lose his temper and, 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 and hit me for no reason. He would hit me because I'd done something wrong, you know, something naughty. Uh, and, you know, reasonably important transgressions, like lying about something or whatever. But the penalty would be to be hit. And I have to say, that was true of most of my friends. You know, I mean, I'm, I was a child of the 60s. Mm. And corporal punishment was still in, I mean, de rigueur in schools. I was caned several times. In the 1960s, you know, the year of flower power, I'd been caned. Um, so it wasn't seen as... In any way, I didn't think it was unusual, because it, it wasn't. It was, it, was, it was normal. So there were those interludes. Yeah. Um, and when did it stop? It stopped at some point. Yes, it? it must. I'm thinking about it. I think it probably stopped when I was about 10, Did you, 11. you stand up to him and say, I'm no. done with this? No, no, yeah. I, I, I don't remember any yeah. kind of confrontation or, you know, seminal conversation about it. It just sort of stopped. Um, and maybe that was something to do with the modern age that we were moving into. I don't yeah. know. I don't know, maybe he just got himself under control. But he was a very loving father, very demonstrative. Mm -hmm. Lots of hugs, lots of kisses, yeah. um, lots of presents. Uh, yes, I would define it as a happy childhood, but I'd say that the absolutely qualifying factor there was mum. Really? Um, yes. She was a very, very, very good mother um, in the sense that she was very demonstrative, totally in your corner, um, funny. Uh, my first memory of her actually is when I must have still been three and I can see her now standing in the, in the kitchen door in a kind of uh, Vera Ellen type dress, looking at me and smiling and pointing at me and saying, for tomorrow. So I would have been three and <laughs> maybe Isn't four. that funny, those memories? Yeah, it is strange. Obviously you left school, didn't you, <clears throat> when you were... 16. You were 16 and... It was be... a complete accident. Um, the plan was, I'd just finished my, my uh, O-levels, as we called them then, the GCSEs. Still waiting for the results. It was the summer holidays, I was 16. Mm. I'd only been 16 for a couple of months. Uh, and I knew then, I'd, I'd always wanted to be a, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but it's true. I was desperate to be an RAF fighter pilot. Now I can see you as that with the aviators. <laughs> You've got the look, Richard. Well, I, I really, really, that was a real ambition. And I did a lot of, you know, proto-research into it. Um, and then when I was about 13, my eyesight slightly deteriorated. I became very slightly short-sighted. And I remember, I had to wear glasses for a while. I remember going to the RAF and there was a recruitment office in Rumford and uh, explaining, and I said, does this mean I couldn't fly? And they said, well, no, you could fly transport aircraft and stuff, but you can't fly supersonic jets. You have to have 20-20 vision for that, really good vision. And that was all I wanted line. to do. Yeah. That was all I wanted to do. So that dream went, and it was supplanted pretty quickly by a perfectly good replacement, which was to be a journalist. Mm. Like my dad had been, he'd been a reporter, then he was that time working in public relations with Ford. And he used to tell me lots of stories about his life as a newspaper reporter in this country, in Canada, where he mm. emigrated. And it sounded great. And it, it was, it is great, actually. It's a great life if you suited to it. That was my next thing. So in this particular summer holiday, I wrote to the local paper, the Brentwood Argus, and uh, asked if what today we would call work experience. Because yeah. I could have a week's work experience. Coming in, making coffee, making the tea, sweeping the floor, and just getting in the, the atmosphere of a newsroom. <laughs> and I got a letter back next day by the first post. There were still two posts in those days. The first yeah. post from the editor saying, basically, fuck off, kid. <laughs> um, we'd, 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 
we don't have room for teenagers in the office, this is a newsroom. And then, and then I was mortified. And then in the second post, I got a much nicer one with him saying, look, I'm sorry, I was having a bad moment. Yeah. Um, come in tomorrow, it's, pre it's press day tomorrow. When the paper's gone to bed at about four in the afternoon, come in and I'll give you 20 minutes and explain how it worked. Mm. So I put my one and only suit on uh, and went to see him the next afternoon. And obviously I knew quite a lot about journalism because of my dad. Mm. So we had a very good chat and after about 20 minutes, Kind of looked at me speculatively and said, do you want to start tomorrow? Wow. And I thought he meant the, the work experience, you know, the week. And I said, what, for a whole week? He said, no, no, no. He said, um, I'll take you on as a, an apprentice. And we call them indentureships in, in this business. You'll be signed up for three years, indentured for three years. Every, two, every 10 months, we'll send you to college where you'll learn shorthand and law and blah, 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 public administration. And at the end of three years, you take your exam and you'll be a qualified journalist at 19. And you'll There's be ahead of the pack. Must have stood out then in you. Do you think like a curiosity, or because I presume he didn't offer jobs to every no. relatively unqualified sixteen-year-old? Do you know what I mean? Well, what do you think I, it was? Well, if I you? say it myself, I was actually a very good reporter. Right. Um, I took to it like a duck to water. I was really good at it. Um, I was good at asking questions. I was good at, at ferreting out stories and stuff. I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I think he just must have seen that potential. Yeah. And also the fact that I, I knew a bit about what I was talking about because of dad, you know. Yes. Um, so uh, it, it, it happened. And so I went home and told my mum and I, I said, well, I'm going to have to ask my mum and dad. And he's 16. And I went home and I explained it to them. And mum was dead against it. Was because, she? Well, the plan was for me to do A-levels, go to university, probably read English uh, and get a, some kind of graduate placement scheme maybe with the guardian and that Telegram. generation particularly yes, I think, uni was were very as, into the university absolutely. it was like yeah it was seen as really important so mum was, was dead against it dad phoned up every reporter that he knew and he had his contact book was full of them yeah and without it and i can see him sitting at the phone that night for an hour and every single one of them said if he knows he what he it's what he wants to do if that's what he's going to do in you know, four yeah. five years then do it now and as the editor says you'll be ahead of the pack so i did i never went back to school and i never looked back Oh, sorry, Richard. Ray's found love. That is doggy love, isn't it? It really is, and the sun's shining down on them. This is like <laughs> if Richard Curtis did dog films. <laughs> oh, he's got all... Ray, you're not looking your best for no, your No, he's date. very leafy today. He's very leafy. Do you have moments when, particularly when you were doing This Morning for so long and it was daily, and there, yeah. were there blank moments where you thought, oh, God, I've forgotten someone's name? Or, oh, that's a, good, that's a very good question. Yeah. Um, no, to be honest. Do you not? No. No, pretty high functioning. I mean, obviously unexpected things would happen that you couldn't possibly prepare for. The, the, for me, the, my favourite was when we were interviewing live about 11 in the morning, Anna Chancellor, the actress, duck face and four yes. weddings and a funeral, yeah? yeah? Uh, she was in a play or something, so we came over to commercial break, and it's here, before we talked to her about the play or the book mm. or whatever. Uh, here's how we all remember her. And we had a clip from four weddings where she's at the altar with Hugh Grant, when mm. Hugh Grant jilts her because he's in love with someone else. And he says that to the, to the whole congregation. And she knocks him out, do you remember? She chins him mm. and knocks him out. Uh, so we showed that clip and we came back live. And I said, uh, and Anna's here now. And I said, actually, Anna, before we talk about the play, that's that character you played there, wonderful, duck face. There's n I've seen that film a million times. And there's never any reference in the dialogue as to why people called her duck face. I mean, obviously you're very beautiful, so nothing, nothing literal. Why would she have been called duck face? <laughs> and the Chancellor, who's very innocent, said, oh, well, I suppose it's probably because, you know, in her backstory somewhere, uh, people used to call her fuckface. <laughs> so there's a, <laughs> there's a protocol in live television when people swear. 
uh, that you turn, one of you turned, in this case, Judy just did it instantly. She turned, you turn the camera and you say, obviously, Anna didn't mean for that to, to, to come out like that. So if anyone watching has been offended, we apologise. So that, and that gets you off the hook with Ofcom. Yeah, you know, you, exactly. You, you, you cleared it. So Judy said that, and as she was finishing, Anna Chancellor leaned across and took her by the wrist and said, no, no, Judy, it's true. She would have been called fuckface. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, Anna, 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 this is a daytime show and it's live and you can't say that. You can't use that word at this time in the morning. Yeah. And so you suddenly saw the scales drop from her eye, the innocence was, <laughs> she realised and she burst into tears and <laughs> fell into Judy's arms and fell into her lap saying, I'll never work again and all of this. Um, I, I, actually, I don't remember how the interview continued. I, that's where, where the, the tape oh, stopped. But, but, but we did I come off it. air to have a, a lot of people had been in touch, but not one complaint, not yeah. one complaint that she yeah. said fuck twice. It was all Basically, people saying, oh, for God's sake, that was the funniest thing. Tell her not to worry, it was fine. Of course. Yeah. And this is the weird thing about swearing, is that it is effectively a sort of, it's an accepted hypocrisy, isn't it? That everyone does it at home. And of it's course. kind of like, but we don't want people on television doing Absolutely. this. Absolutely. You know? It's a very, uh, very odd thing. Well, I was doing Good Morning Britain a few weeks ago. Yes, because you've been... Um, I sit in for peers. Yeah, you I'm, do it a lot, though, don't I'm you? I've done about total of about three months of the year which is plenty that's more than enough for me is but, it um yeah i don't want to do it too often but anyway and i said bloody at some point i can't remember in what context but it was, yeah, it was just like as you would say oh what a bloody shame and the papers went bonkers about it the next day madely swears i thought it's only bloody <laughs> i mean you know it's not the c word or fuck I mean, it's just bloody for crying out loud um and i and i actually knew that the papers had got had, had completely got it wrong that I knew that the viewers didn't give a toss no. that I'd said bloody I don't know if we had any complaints but I wouldn't I don't care if we did it, you know it's, it's just not offensive not no. these days I want to just talk briefly about when you lost your dad because you got married Richard didn't you yep. when you were quite young yep I was 21 yeah ridiculous why do you say ridiculous? Well, it's far too young to know what you're doing, I think. And it was, OK, that's not fair, because some people know exactly what they're doing at 21, but I didn't. Um, and I married, and it was completely my fault, I married for completely the wrong reasons. Um, what, what had happened was I'd spent three years working in papers, four years working in papers. I'd become deputy editor of the East London Advertiser. Uh, it was going well, but local radio was really beginning to blossom in, in the UK, particularly with the BBC. This is, this is 1976. And I really decided that... I wanted to get into broadcasting and radio was the way in. Mm. Uh, and I wrote to all these burgeoning stations all over the country and they all wrote back and said, you're too young. Mm. Uh, you're only 20, you can't do it. Or 19, I think I was. Um, except Radio Carlisle, now Radio Cumbria. And I got a job with them. And I went up as a contract reporter, basically, you know, going out with the tape recorder, reading the news, all that. Uh, and it just never crossed my mind mm. until I got there that I was going to be 350 miles from home, you know, um, without anyone you know, today we would call the support network, no friends, no family, um, just stuck up in Carlisle, you know, which I'd never been to in my life before, so I had absolute, I knew nobody there. And in those days, BBC Local Radio was quite largely staffed by sort of Radio 4 yeah. rejects, you know, or people who were slowing down a bit. Um, did you have that sense of feeling... you? I was, like, I was, you had I, to earn a seat at the table and you didn't I, quite belong. Well, I felt, I felt socially and culturally up there, I felt a complete outsider. I was a Romford boy, basically. Right. I'd, I'd only recently stopped talking like that, you know. Because I, you know, I went to school in the East End of London, I went to school in Mile End. Uh, you know, I went to school in Romford before that. Um, because Dad was a public school boy, right. at home I spoke pretty much like this. Yes. But, but amongst my friends, and I wasn't putting it on, I used, it's like slipping from one language to the next if you're bilingual. I, I spoke like that, I spoke like with these 
So when I got up to, and I spoke like that in the newsroom, because we all spoke like that, it was, you know, East London newspapers, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so when I got to Carlisle, they all spoke like this. And it was actually a lot plummier back in the, even back in the mid-70s yeah. than it is now. Um, so I had to sort of adjust to that. They're all much older than me, mostly married with families and stuff. And you didn't know anybody in Carlisle. And I had this horrible little flat in Warwick Road that used to flood when, when the Eden burst its banks. And I'd been there for about three weeks. And then I met the girl in the flat downstairs, Linda. It was very pretty, very funny. A little bit older than me. She was about 26, I think. Um, and really good, good fun, really good company. Mm. And I kind of clung to her like a drowning man. You know, um, and she became very important to me mm. in those early months in Carlisle. She, you know, she was an anchor basically, and she fell in love with me. Yeah. Uh, and I persuaded myself that I'd fallen in love with her, and we got married. Mm. And it was a classic folie de. Right. If we just waited a bit, we would realise that we were totally unsuited. Um, yeah, we we liked each other well enough, but it wasn't it wasn't right. And it was my fault. I I pushed it. Um, you know, I've always felt bad about that. I pushed it. I persuaded her to do it. She went along with it, and it was a mistake. Were and you it, not very confident with women when you were younger? Uh, or were you? Because I see you as this quite sort of dashing, suave. No, I was never a player, if, if yeah. that's what you mean. Well, um, not really. I think I suppose I would see that you wouldn't. That you'd be the person that you think, oh yeah, Richards. No, I, I tell you what. I'm not going to struggle. No, I think I think I did a bit, but that was because. I went, to, uh, I went to a grammar school in the East End, which is a boys' school mm. uh, called Cooper's Company, founded in about 1516 or something. And by the time I went there, it was kind of falling apart. It's, it's reinvented itself now. It's a great school. It moved, moved to Upminster and it's co-ed. Mm. But when I went there, having come from a mixed junior school, it was a shock to go into an all-male environment. I didn't like it. Mm. Uh, and it was pretty rough. I mean, these were East End boys, you know. Uh, pretty handy with their fists, you know, and, and the occasional knife and all that. And it was, it was not good. It wasn't, it wasn't a good grammar school at all. It was a rough place. And I, I felt quite intimidated there. And it was, you know, kind of a job to kind of get through the day. And then we moved from Romford to Brentwood and I changed schools. And I went to a comprehensive, Schoenfield, which is a great school, which is mixed. And I was incredible. And all my male classmates in these mixed classrooms, and I think I was about 14 by then, 14 or 15, they were very relaxed with, around girls mm. because the, the, they'd never not been around girls, you know. I was tongue-tied. I didn't know how to approach them, what to say. Um, I was completely out of my comfort zone and very, very, very shy of girls. Very, very shy, very nervous. I don't think I went out with a girl till I was about 16. In fact, I think I was. I think it was after I'd gone on the paper and I suddenly felt that I'd found my identity, you know, I'd found my niche. I was a newspaper reporter, you know. Yeah. And it gave me an identity and it gave me a, a shape. And it was after that that I developed a bit more confidence and well that's a very neat illustration of that idea of in order to you know to feel loved you have to sort of feel self-respect or love for yourself don't you it's that you feel right I'm, I think men feel that as well particularly that you know when you back then the notion that men identified themselves mm -hmm. by their job yes. effectively yes so you weren't dateable until you know it's like yes what think, are you doing? I think you are, that's you know. exactly right. That's it. and, and it's daft, but that's, yeah. that's how it was. And so shortly after you got married, your dad died, didn't he? He, he died when we were actually on our honeymoon. We'd, um, we got married in, up in Cumbria. It was an incredibly small ceremony. It was a, in a beautiful medieval church in the countryside near, uh, near where Melvin Bragg was born, actually. Oh, right, in, yeah. Wixen, but in the, just in the foothills of the Fells. Uh, it was just me and... 
Linda and my mum and dad and her mum and dad, and that was it. Uh, and we had, uh, we had a kind of, just the six of us had a wedding reception at a local hotel, and then we went off on honeymoon. And I'd, we'd been down in, in Somerset for about four or five days mm. when I came, and this is long before mobile phones and all of that. I came, we came back from the beach one hot August day, and there's a message, as I can still see it, there was a piece of A4 paper pinned to the door of our little rented cottage saying, Richard Madeley, call mother, urgent. I don't know how she tracked us down, but anyway. So I went to a public call box in, in this little village. It was near Wookie Hull, and uh, called mum. And uh, this was about four in the afternoon. And she picked up, and I said it was me, what's up? And I always remember exact words. She said, I have to tell you that your father died today at three minutes past one. <laughs> and it was kind of a bullet to the brain. Yeah. He'd done, basically, the, we had no idea there was anything wrong with him, and neither did he. He, uh, he, used, he worked f in the Ford Press office in Worley in Brentford, mm. and we lived in Brentford, and he used to come home for his lunch most days mm. uh, at about one o'clock. And this particular day, this particular afternoon, he'd come home a little bit early, and Mum, who'd been upstairs, she was very, uh, very old-fashioned, sort of sixties wife, she was putting her makeup on for yes. her husband. She heard, uh, she heard him trying to get in through the front door, and he's the key scrabbling in the lock, and he wasn't opening. So what, what on earth is that? Is, is that Chris? And she went down and opened the door, and he was standing there looking like death warmed up. Pale as a sheet, trembling. Car parked in the drive at a terrible angle. Door wide open. Papers blowing up, up and down the drive. And he just said, I think I'm having a heart attack. <gasps> and uh, so she got him in, got him onto the sofa in the front room, uh, called an ambulance, came back to put her, put her arms around him. And his last <laughs> words to her were, um, do you have to hold me so bloody tight? <laughs> so she, lo she loosened her embrace and he just winked out. Just like that. Mm. And it turned out, the post-mortem showed, that uh, he'd been a very heavy smoker until a couple of years previously. He was 49. Right. So he'd smoked probably since he was about 15. And he'd uh, basically fucked up his arteries. They were completely yeah. furred up. A lot of damage, a lot of um, CO2 damage to the uh, And probably quite high arteries. stress and in high terms stress, of driving yes. around. It's that, yes, and short-tempered, you know. He, yeah. he, he wasn't good at managing stress. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he had high blood pressure and all of that. So yeah, um, but, he really, but to look at him, mm. he was pretty fit and you know, not overweight or anything like that. He'd stopped smoking, he didn't, he wasn't a drinker. Mm. But it, yeah, so he died. And that, that didn't help the marriage, because it no. it, you know, we were only on a honeymoon. It took a lot of, of focus off it. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a tough year, actually, that first year. It sounds um, horrific. We began drifting apart pretty much from then, I think. Yeah. And uh, then I, I was very much chasing my career. Um, I moved across to Border Television in 1978. You were presenting, yeah. Presenting there and reporting, yeah. you know, yeah. in, the, in the newsroom, news reporter, yeah. uh, newsreader, all that. And then I got a break and went down to Yorkshire Television, which was a lot bigger. Worked with Richard Wycley, the late great, oh, yeah. um, in the newsroom there. Uh, again, as a, as a you know, on-the-road reporter and presenter, newsreader in studio, and started to do other shows, did a few sports shows. And then I got poached by Granada. Uh, and, and then you got poached by Judy. Uh, no, well, that's not what happened. <laughs> it's, well, it depends which say, version you. So, well, so well, just, what is the actual version? Because I heard that Judy, I love Judy, that she came up to you and apparently said, "I'm your mummy." Ah, uh, yeah, you your see, mentor. It's, well, it's true, but it's just to finish. So, yeah. every time I made this big move, like from Carlisle to Yorkshire, yeah, I, 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 it happened very quickly, and Linda would stay behind pursuing her own life, you know. Mm. And then she followed me to Yorkshire, and then I went across to Manchester, and that was, I think, the final nail mm. in it, really. And we just agreed that it, it hadn't worked and we should divorce, so we did. Yeah. So by the time I got to Manchester, um, I was going through the process of, of divorce, which was perfectly friendly, it was all right. Um, and 
Yes, on my very first day in the, in the newsroom in Key Street in Manchester, uh, I was sitting at my desk, sorting out my papers, and I felt this two hands on my shoulder from behind. And I looked up, and it was Judy Finnegan, oh. who I knew of. I mean, she was quite well known in the North yeah. as, a, as a regional presenter. And she said, I'm your mummy, and I, which I, I thought was fucking weird. Um, and then she laughed and she explained that, yes, it was Granada's mentoring system. You were assigned either a mother or a father for the first week. And did uh, you think, well, this is a bit orcs, because I actually quite fancy you. <laughs> well, no, because she, she explained what it meant, really. So it was, I laughed, it was funny. Yeah. Yes, did you get a feeling when you met Judy? Um, no. Uh, it wasn't, no, it wasn't like, that wasn't like, you know, sort of uh, instant, uh, you know, what are they... They used to say yeah, about Hitler, Hitler Fuhrer Fu- 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 contact yeah, and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. No, I liked her, and I and I I'd seen her. her team, they sent me a, um, a, a video cassette when I agreed to join Granada of Granada Reports, the nightly show with Judy on it, and I thought she was very good. Mm. In fact, she was the very first woman reporter, woman face at Anglia Television. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. She was the very first news reporter that was a woman there. Anyway, she was very good. Uh, yes, and very pretty, and all the rest of it. Um, but I was going through a divorce, and I wasn't looking for you know yeah. something else. So we got to know each other over the, that first year. My divorce came through. Um, she, she was going through bad times in her first marriage too. And, and that, she had that was, two, um, two little she boys. Twins, yep, she? My, yeah. my stepsons, Tom yeah. and Dan. Um, and we just basically became very good friends. Yeah. Uh, we liked each other. We had a very similar outlook on, on the world, on life. The Falklands War was, was kicking off at that time. And Granada was very, very hard left. It was a very lefty newsroom. And, and the newsroom as a whole utterly disapproved a of Margaret Thatcher yeah. and B of the Falklands War. They had a very Michael Foot approach to it. And Judy and I were the only two people in the newsroom who thought that we absolutely had to fight the Falklands War. Right. That we had, didn't have an alternative. I remember getting into some huge arguments with the rest of the team and we realised the two of us were on the, on the same side, beleaguered by everyone else. I remember saying at one meeting, don't you realise, you talk about Margaret Thatcher being fascist, don't you realise that the person who's invaded the Falklands is a fascist dictator, the real, the real article, General Galtieri. He's a, he's a, He's a dictator. Yeah. Of course we've got to go in and get these people back. Anyway, that's another story. So we became friends. We became a little bit like soulmates. Mm. I'd been going through a divorce and so was she. So we had that in common as well. And talk, talk. How yes. did you, um, I always call it, because I've had this where I've got together with friends yeah. and I call it breaking cover. Like someone has to break cover first. Do you know what I mean? There's the first one who says, look, I feel... I remember a guy I got together with and he sent me a text. It was quite romantic at the time, actually, because he said, um, I wanted to kiss you tonight. And he said, because I thought, what if no one does? That would be wrong. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is quite Richard Curtis. <laughs> but it was brave of him. Yes, it was. Well, um, it, well actually... So it do was, you, did you do a similar thing? No, it was a, it, was a, it was a moment of mutuality. What happened was we'd, we'd done a year together on Granada Reports. The show had come off air for the summer, as it used to do in those days. And <clears throat> they asked... And, they they moved us into pole position as the two main presenters. Granada recognised that yeah. we, we had good chemistry on screen. So by then we sort of I squeezed out. Why. Well, as as it, as it turned out, we sort of squeezed out the other presenters really, and we were the main presenters. And so Granada sent us to Blackpool uh, one Friday to record some promotions for the return of Granada Reports in a few weeks' time. Yeah. So we went there together in a taxi. We spent the whole day filming together, just the two of us and the crew. And then the crew went back to Manchester, and we went to a, a hotel and had, had dinner together. Uh, and had, a, had our probably our first properly intense, uninterrupted conversation together, just the two of us. So we hadn't ever gone out for lunch or dinner before. Yeah. We did, or candle it and all the rest of it. And then we got in a cab to take us back to Manchester. And that's about Richard an hour, about an hour and a half. And that's about an hour and a half. And carried on talking, it became very confiding and very intimate. And when we arrived at her house, where she got out, 
we just kissed each other. It, it, it was. It just felt natural. It was part of. It was. It seemed a completely natural conclusion to the conversation we've yeah. been having. But it was a proper kiss, and you know, it wasn't chased. And the next morning, when we called each other up, we said, "Well, what happened yesterday?" <laughs> um, we both agreed that something probably quite significant had happened, and that maybe there was it was something we needed to, to do something about. And, yeah. and off it went, and we we embarked on basically our relationship. Uh, Granada weren't that pleased about it. Were well, they very, not? No, they had a very old-fashioned view about it. They thought they thought it was excluding, um, and in some way morally wrong. Very odd. Yeah. Uh, and, and then they, they changed their mind when they realised well, what a cash cow you well, <laughs> well, no, they, initially they, they split us up. And, yeah. we, uh, and I carried on doing reports and Judy worked on another programme. And then we got married. Yeah. And then we had our children. And Judy actually said to you, which I like, didn't she? Because you knew you'd be taking on, you were sort of a relatively young man in your late 20s. Yeah. And didn't Judy say, I come as a three pack? Yes, she did. That's you exactly know. what she said. Yeah. When, I'd, when we'd moved on to the question, should we get married? That's yeah. exactly what she said. What did you interpret that at I the time? I interpreted it to mean that I had to make a full, as big a commitment to, to my putative stepsons, Tom and Dan, twins, mm. as I was to her, that, they, that it was all part of the package. Yeah. And if I couldn't do that, as some men can't, if I couldn't do that, then it was a no, a no, a no deal. Yeah. Now, as it happened, Tom and Dan, who are now in their 40s, bless them, and I'm very close to. Uh, they were adorable. I mean, they were blonde, little blonde twins, seven-year-old. Um, I gradually got to know them, you know, when I'd go around and see Judy. Mm. This is after she'd separated from her husband. I became more and more of a presence in their lives, but only during the day, and I never stayed over. We mm. thought that would be wrong for them. And then after about six months, we came up with a plan. It was summer. We thought we'd rent a cottage in Cornwall, go down there as a group, as a family, and then I would obviously have to stay over, and I would yeah. become this fixture at the breakfast table. So we, we did that for a week. We had amazing weather. We stayed in the beautiful valley in Cornwall, near some beautiful beaches. It was a total success. Mm. And we drove back to, to, to Manchester. And when we got there, by arrangement, I carried the bags in. There was a sort of a little interregnum. And Judy said, um, boys, what do you think? It's all right for Richard to stay here, isn't it, now, after the last week? And they sort of went, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. And she said, oh, good, OK, well, then bring your bag in. So I did. Yeah. And she sent them up. And I had my first test. As, as a live-in stepdad, that moment, the boys had gone upstairs to have their bath. They'd run, run up to, to run their bath. Mm. And one of them shouted down, Richard! I said, what? I said, there's a huge spider in the bath. Can you come and get it? Now, I had a real thing about spiders. Hated them. I was phobic about spiders. And, you know, if there was one in the room, I couldn't settle till we'd been yeah. dispatched. Uh, and Judy just looked at me and raised an eyebrow. <laughs> OK. So I went upstairs to the bathroom. And you know when you go away on holiday and you come back, very often the insects have taken over. Yes. And there was this huge tarantula sitting over <laughs> the plug hole. It was massive and furry and hairy and pulsing. And, oh, it was you know, my worst nightmare. So there was a magazine, there was a country life or something on an occasional table in the bathroom. And I rolled it up in order to kill it. And immediately the boy said, no, 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 no. No, don't kill it. Daddy, Daddy doesn't kill them. Daddy picks them up and puts them out the window. Oh, I thought, great. well, great Thanks, for Daddy. Daddy. Fantastic. <laughs> but, you know... Well, the country life, Richard, you're giving it a very smart funeral. <laughs> you're seeing it off in style. Well, it's not maybe, a heat magazine. Maybe it was Vanity Fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, or Spiders Monthly. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, you know, plan A gone. So I just had to do it. Arachnid phobic maidly puts, puts it down, leans forward, took a huge breath and yeah. picked the bastard up by one leg <laughs> and it wriggled all over my hand and I opened the bathroom window and I dropped it out and cured myself of, of fear of spiders because in an instant. To. And I went downstairs and Judy said, all right. And I said, give me a gin and tonic. And she said, it was only a spider. And I looked at her, I thought, this is one thing you'll never understand. Yeah. You'll never know how brave I was up there just now. <laughs>
It's interesting because obviously you and Judy worked together for over 10 years on that show. Um, was it 12 years? We did, 13, we did 13 years on This Morning. Yeah. Uh, and we did uh, about eight or nine years on Richard and Judy, Afterwards which on went straight Judy. on Channel 4. Yeah. Which is funny. 21 years. What they did was essentially just call that what everyone started calling This Morning, which I suppose summed up how successful you were as a couple, that it wasn't This Morning, it was Richard and Judy. And yes. I love that pensioners still go, oh, Richard and Judy, they still <laughs> call it that. But what do you think the secret to that? success was there's there's no there's no single magic bullet actually to programs that succeed to the extent that that, that did yeah uh, and, and it's presented to succeed it's 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 a it's a mix of things and i know what they are mm. um well the first thing is we were both very ex- when this morning came along we'd both been t- presenting in television and we'd done a whole range of regional programs and a few network ones for years so we knew the language we knew what we were doing you know mm. and we were quite we were quite good at it we were mm. you know we, we were some people are some people aren't and we just happened to be lucky enough to be able to do it and mm. and we presented very well together um, so we had all that already in the bank, you know. So, so the presenting duo of this new show called This Morning was sort of, that, that was okay, that, that, that ought to work. But of course it's not just about that, it's about content. Mm. And what, what I was discovering then, and we both were, and I, and I know for a fact now, is that programmes that work, it doesn't matter what they are, whether they're dramas, uh, magazine shows, Good Morning Britons, BBC Breakfasts, you know, the one show, Shows that, that work and last and get recommissioned and become part of people's lives are the ones where those doing it know why they're there. They know what the show's for. The show's got to have a point. Mm. And the shows that don't work are the ones that you realise as a viewer at a, at a, at a very instinctive level, then they're not sure who they are. They're not sure what their personality is or yeah. what they're doing in that slot. They're just basically filling airtime. And those shows get found out very quickly and they die. But if a show develops its personality and the people working on it, all of them, mm. especially the presenters, know what the personality of that show is, then it takes off. And we knew that we were serving what was called then the hidden agenda, that mm. there were things we were doing on this morning that no one else was doing on television. It was based very much on American models. We watched a lot of American daytime shows. Yeah. Um, and also, the, the other thing was, it was really in your face in the sense that, they, people forget this, but this was 1988, and as a concept, Daytime television was seen as immoral. I mean, the moment yeah. we came on air, papers like the Mail, the Express that we write for now, all of them said, what? <laughs> television in the day? I mean, you know, we'd had open university, but yeah. television programming, because basically television was to be watched in the evening when yeah. you'd done a good hard day's work or a you good the gin day's and studying. It was your reward for yeah. your, your day not watching television. But to sit on a sofa <laughs> in your living room at 11 in the morning in broad daylight yeah. and watch a television show, it was seen as the nadir of morality. Well, it was the first, my memory of it, I certainly remember it being the first sort of guilt-free daytime TV experience, you know. <laughs> but also, I have another thing, which is, I think, Jonathan Ross, who lives, who is your sort of neighbour, That's his lives, house, that's his yeah, house there. just there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. He said, once I remember watching TV with him, and I said about a presenter, oh, they're good. And he said, do you know why that is? Because they're themselves. Yeah. And he said, whenever someone, he said, that's what is the difference between someone that you feel comfortable watching and you don't, is yes. when someone... And it's a bit like I suppose I always feel with you and Judy, that it doesn't feel your dynamic. I appreciate that you're on to a degree, yes. but your dynamic isn't wildly different, perhaps, from the one you would have in real life. No, it's the, it, it's, it's the same as you being pretty much the same people over breakfast together and then when friends come around for dinner. 
when they come around for dinner, you're sort of on, mm. and you're putting on a bit of a show, aren't you? And you're, you're serving yeah. food and everything, and you're not quite the way you would be if you were just sitting watching Newsnight. Uh, but it's still you, yeah. um, but just in a, a slightly different dimension. And the other thing, and, and I agree with Jonathan completely about that, the other thing is, and Clive James said this many years ago, and it affected me a lot in the sense that I, I, I could see the, the inner truth of it, that on, he said, on television, he meant presenting, he said, mm. on television, it's never what you say, it's how you come over. Right. And that was so right. It's about tone. Mm. And we instinctively understood that the tone of this morning had to be friendly and warm and, I say this myself, but crucially intelligent. Mm. Just because it was a daytime show, that was no excuse for sloppy thinking, you know, or cheap gimmicks, although we did have them, <laughs> which were fun. But basically, it had should simply never underestimate the intelligence yeah. of the audience and should engage with them on the, on the highest level possible for that kind of show. Um, and also, we were journalists. Of course, so, originally. So you were... Was that sort of difficult, though? Because the pressures... You went on to have your own family and yeah. know, Chloe and Jack. And was there a point, where, especially when you had the kids, when that ever became overwhelming for Never. either of you? No, I mean, I'm, I'm asked this and Judy's asked this all the time. Yeah. I think Judy found the whole fame thing uh, trickier than I did. Did she? Yes. Why do you think that is? Uh, she's she's sh much shyer than I am. In fact, she's the most, in many ways, she's the unlikeliest successful television presenter you'll ever meet because she's very, very shy. Um, quite withdrawn, quite self-conscious, doesn't have a great deal of confidence. But when the red light goes on, something happens and she turns into this extraordinary sort of confident gifted communicator mm. um so in the downtime when we weren't actually in the studio and there'd be stories about us in the paper and stuff she found that more disturbing than, than i didn't give a fuck i didn't care at all and i still i still don't I, what I, when you were written about and things oh god yeah yeah I mean, I but then you. i would say to be honest richard i do think judy suffered a lot of misogyny at the well, hands of the uh, media. Well, of course you did. And That's all women do. All even women. at the time, you know, before it was sort of accepted to acknowledge that kind of stuff, I do remember thinking, this is awful. It's yes. like Because that's not her job. She's not... And in the way that a male presenter, mm -hmm. there weren't pictures of him in Supermarket Weekly saying they look tired or... No. Like, was that tough, you know? It was, it, was, it was tough for her. Yeah. But what I would used to, I used to obviously tell her that it was bullshit and, mm. and, and bollocks and to try not to take it personally because mm. it, was, it was and frankly is today in 2019, <laughs> it's still de rigueur for mm. women on television to have their appearance picked apart fairly or unfairly. Well, it's never fair, but you know what I mean? Accurately or inaccurately. Um, for whatever reason, whatever motive, uh, and it's, it's never right, and it's still going on. Mm. So I used to say, you know, you, you, there's a lot of people in the boat with you. And you're quite right, it doesn't happen to men to anything like the same extent. Well, I was going to ask you a question. Would you say you're a feminist? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Really? Yes, I, I think any of my, my, my women friends would definitely think that I've had a, quite a strong feminist outlook, because I do. Um, I've, I've never not felt that, that men and women are and should be completely equal, mm. paid equally, treated equally, given equal respect. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's I don't even have to think about it. Do you think having a daughter is helpful for men in that respect, in any uh, way? Because I often think sometimes... I think being married to a feminist is helpful. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, you know, Judy's been a feminist since she could think. Yeah. Um, and I think being exposed to her thinking, uh, her analysis, kind of... What was it, the other phrase Clive James used? He said that his job was to 
turn a sentence until it catches the light. Uh, that's uh, nice. That's yeah. a great phrase, isn't it? And yeah. I, I, think, I think that I always had kind of, if you like, proto-feminist instincts. Yeah. But being with Judy very quickly polished them up yeah. and made them a lot more focused. But yeah, I, do, I mean, if somebody said that I, if somebody accused me of not being feminist-minded, I'd be quite insulted because I am, you know. You, um, you're, you strike me as like you have a very close relationship with your kids and Jack um, manages you, which I love. <laughs> yes. Can I say he is a very good manager? One he's, of the best I've ever yeah, dealt he's, with. Yeah, he's, he's a natural, isn't he? He yeah. is really good. Yeah, um, I'm very proud of him. What do you think the differences are between your parenting and how you were parented? Uh, Either consciously or unconsciously? I'd say that it was a combination of, of, of being conscious and unconscious. I think that, well, you mentioned at the beginning of this, fathers and sons. I had a very happy childhood, as I said, uh, and, a, and a very loving mother. And I was aware because, you know, the stories in the family about what happened to my grandfather. Mm. And my father was very frank about how unhappy he'd been as a child. I could see that, that as I say somewhere in the book, you know, it's a cliche, but cliches are there because they're true, usually. The sins of the father can be visited on the son. And I was determined to have none of that nonsense yes. um, happening in, in, in my life with my family. And also, I just, I don't know, I, maybe one has to be lucky with your children, but I found my, my, I found my stepsons intensely lovable. Yeah. I, I found Jack, when he came along, intensely lovable. And then Chloe, as our only daughter, intensely lovable. I mean, it, it wasn't an option not Did to love Did you ever have them. to, but the temper thing, that was obviously yes. a sort of slight maidly male trait, yeah. did you work to sort of make that less of an issue or do you think you just didn't really ever have that I don't think because really you seem quite a gentle bloke I don't think no we've all got a temper obviously yeah. um so I'm not saying that I don't lose my temper because I do sometimes but not in anything like the way that my dad did with me yeah or his father did with him no that all that rage so ha I have no reason to be angry I, you know I mean I've, I've had a really lucky life you know um good good parents loving parents a great yeah. a great sister no traumas really in my upbringing other than when dad died at 21 but that can happen mm. to anyone um bloody interesting career we got the exclusive with oj the world exclusive interview with which OJ people Simpson. were pissed off about i imagine oh yeah obviously yeah. tons of professionals LSE, but, but screw, Judy. screw that you know so we did the, we had, had the contracts drawn up we got him and it was going to be the first of a new evening series that we were trialing out for itv i can't remember what it was called the yes, Tonight Show, that. something yeah, like that, yeah. at seven o'clock. Yes. And it was half an hour, which is not really long enough for that kind of show. But anyway, it was a trial. And we got him for the first one. Huge publicity, obviously, huge launch show. It's going to be great. And he was going to be the whole show. Yeah. So it was going to be him, the break, the second half, and out. Now, that would actually give us, in terms of airtime, if you count in the titles, the credits, the commercial break, you probably, in the half-hour slot on ITV, you're looking at about 24 minutes. Yeah. Okay? That's tight for an interview of that magnitude and of course it's live so you can't overrun you know and, and no. re recut it you've got to get it all in so Judy and I did a lot of almost rehearsal really with each other and going through angles and things and how we were going to play it and you're right we didn't ask him did you kill Nicole of course we didn't I do seem to remember though that one of us said you've been acquitted OJ why do you think so many people think still yeah. think you did it which I think is a much more intelligent yeah. way to ask the question um, anyway we We'd had pre-recorded an interview a couple of days before we went on air with Neil Diamond, which was going to go out in a subsequent week. And he sang a song and all that. And that, that ran for about 12 minutes, that mm. item. And it was in the can, but not to be used for a week or two. And the day, the day that we were due to interview O.J. Simpson, the then head of ITV, whose name I'm not even going to mention, <laughs> long gone. You can Google it. Long gone. Yeah. Marcus Plantini was called. <laughs> he can't help himself, maybe. Long gone. This is why we love him. Long gone now. He had a... 
panic attack, basically. Really? And he contacted Granada in Manchester, where we were, and said, I don't want the whole show going to AJ Simpson. Have you got anything else? And they said, well, we've got an interview with Neil Diamond. He said, right, OJ in the first half, Neil Diamond in the second. Now, to this day, I don't know what the logic of that was. I just, but he just suddenly thought that giving half an hour of ITV airtime to a man who everybody thought was a, was a brutal killer was possibly a bad PR move. He was completely wrong. It was a scoop. It was a major scoop. So we get told this at about five o'clock, and we're on air in two hours' time. Mm. Well, you can imagine the row. Mm. I have to say, that was a long time ago. If that happened now, or it had happened even 10 years ago, what would you I, do now? I would have walked. I would, would have absolutely said it's undoable. Well, That's, it's a bit like saying to Emily Maitlis, we're going to put a sort of exactly. Katy Perry 10 minute on the top of this. Exactly. It, it reduces your exactly. job in a sense. So no offence to Neil Diamond. No, you know, no, no, no. But come so on, it, mate. But anyway, we didn't, we should have walked. We had the route and lost it. Mm. Granada weren't happy either, but it was, that was the diktat. And we went on air. And we started the interview and it, it had two effects. The first one was it, it distorted the way we did the interview. A lot of people said they thought it was good. Mm. It would have been so much better if we'd known we had half an hour. Mm. But we didn't. We knew we had 12 minutes. So we were rushed and we had to, had to move on too quickly. Yeah. And then there was this easily the worst moment in our joint broadcasting career, easily the very worst moment, where Judy had to turn to camera. There was a lawyer in the gallery from ITV to make sure that we didn't overrun with a stopwatch. Yeah. And when we got the thing out of time, Judy, in the, and he was in the middle of a sentence and we really just got him warmed up. He was just starting to sweat, you know, yeah. had beads of sweat on his top lip. We were getting to him. And Judy had to interrupt and say, well, I'm sorry, OJ, that's all we have time for. Oh. Back after the break with Neil Diamond. And the audience oh. went, huh? there's what? a live audience. So they went, yeah. huh? And OJ went, what? And <laughs> Even the, shame, <laughs> the shame of it, the, sh the professional shame of it is still with me. It wasn't our fault, but it was awful. It was just, mm. oh, it's terrible. And uh, as I say, if that were to happen or anything like that were to happen now, I'd simply say, well, we're not doing the show, find someone else we're not doing it you know you've made it impossible and i think if we'd done that we might actually have prevailed yeah were you convinced after meeting him though of his guilt by the way i think that would be arrogant actually to okay. to, 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 to say that yeah. i'm very 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 suspicious of his defense <laughs> um very suspicious of his defense most of which i can't remember now um and he certainly and then you know he was an american football player so you expect this but he certainly had a a bone crushing handshake and yeah. quite a uh, almost threatening presence. Yeah. Um, he leaned very much into your body space when you met him. He tried to dominate you with his shoulders and he'd come in hard. Um, so, well, it was interesting seeing Mike Tyson interviewed recently. It was actually on that Anthony Joshua documentary. And yeah. he said, he was talking and he said, the problem is I just never heard no enough. And uh -huh. he said, when you don't hear, and I think with sportsmen, that's a peculiar thing perhaps as well well you know? see the thing about sportsmen is they have to be at that level not your son-in-law no, 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 of no, course no. who james um, has well, one, no. he's just come out of the jungle well even so you know james would would admit this and actually made reference to it in his speech to be a successful athlete or sports person yeah. at international level at that level uh you have to be fundamentally selfish mm. i mean you just can't not be you can't not put your needs and your um services first they come they have to come first otherwise you, you're not going to win so, you know, imagine being married to Andy Murray, bless him. Yeah. At, at a fundamental level, it's all about him. It has to be. It's, that's not because he's a selfish person by, by, by birth, yeah. as it were. It's because you have to become so. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. So, you know, I never heard no enough. I can believe that. Absolutely. You're a granddad now, Richard. I mean, uh, you knew that. Three times over. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's th yeah, because obviously the twins as well. Yeah. Um, well, one of them, Tom. Yeah, he's yeah, got, Tom, he's got yeah. two daughters, yeah. 
Do you, are you a good granddad? I like to think so. Yeah. Um, I, I, I bet you are. Well, it's great. You're I a can, very young, hip granddad. Well, I don't know about that, but I have huge fun with them. And, and obviously, we've got a grandson now. We've got two granddaughters, aged seven and one. Yeah. And uh, Kit, my grandson, who's 15 months, Jack's, Is Jack's, that Jack's boy. Yeah. And Kit and I, actually, we really do get on well. But there's, <laughs> we, I mean, everybody says it in the fact, everybody says we've definitely got a, a bond. He always comes, t t you know, toddling across to me and grabs hold of my legs and just stays with me when, when, when we hey, meet, you know. I remember you said something once, and I've never forgotten it. Um, people go on about Maedleyisms, and oh, I yeah. love Maedleyisms because you. they always make me think. And you said, do you, have you, do babe, what do babies dream yeah, of? Yeah, that's and right. And I never forgot it. I thought, what do they dream I, of? I think, I think what I said was, I, do babies dream yeah, of? Yeah, but what no, do they I, dream? I've seen that in the list of Maedleyisms, which are meant to be, you know... What is that Maedleyisms? It's saying, oh, you know... Well, isn't it a reasonable... Oh, look, Richard. Oh, pair of sunglasses. Someone's got some sunglasses. Are they, Tom, nice, are they Tom Ford? Are they Tom Ford? No, they're not. <laughs> I love that picture said, are they Tom Ford? No, they're the white company. They're the white company. That'd be nice for Judy. Well, they're right in the middle of the... I'll put them on a wall when we go back. Um, yeah. I can't um, remember the context in which I would have said yeah. that, but it would have been an aside in a conversation. Well, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Well, it's a thought, isn't it? Yeah. Do babies dream? Yeah. And actually, if you... I think, it, what do dogs dream of? Apparently, they're owners. Thank really? you, Ray. Yeah. Well, if you look at a sleeping baby, quite often you'll see what they call REM, rapid eye movement going on, and mm. that is a sign that someone's dreaming. So yes, yeah. babies do dream. And what do they dream of? Do they dream of milk? Uh, you, know, do, you know, the stimuli that surround, do they dream of mobiles? Yeah. Or the bars of a cot? What do they dream of? You know, what are their yeah. uncontrolled, unhidden fantasies that are going on in their sleep? Yeah. It's, it's, I think that's a totally fucking legitimate question. And yet <laughs> I see it used as an attack on me, which I don't care about, that's no. completely fine. Um, but it, it's not logical to say that that's a stupid question, because it's not a stupid question. Richard, do you have therapy? No. You answered that in quite a... No. No. Um, well, it, well, oddly enough, because we were discussing it... Because you're an agony uncle. No, well, no, we were just... Funny, we were discussing therapy with, with friends a couple of days ago. None of us have had therapy. And we were, we were talking about other people's need for it. And clearly there yeah. is a need for it. No, I've never felt in... I, I don't feel repressed in any way. Maybe that's why you have this whole thing about maidalisms. I've never felt repressed or bent out of shape by life or my circumstances. You know, as I said, I, I think I've been incredibly lucky and fortunate in, in my life. You're I mean, quite you know, resilient, would you say? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I am a believer in the stiff upper lip. Are you? Yes. Yeah. I, I actually do think that obviously there are times when you do need to talk things out and talk things through. And I do that anyway, naturally. But I think, I think one's response to being bloody but unbowed, as it were, um, is actually quite a good test of character. Uh, and I think it's, if you can, it's best to be brave when adversity comes knocking at the door because it's not going to last forever which shouldn't. I agree with that but I think what you were to take us back actually to when we started your point is I think you beat you're brave but I think you have to recognize the damage and then be brave because yes. I think what sometimes happens is people feel an emotion anger or fear or whatever and they just act out without realizing the root of it do you know what I mean? So if you're yes. no, I think that's I think I think you're absolutely it's right. It's like, oh right, okay, maybe I'm behaving like this because. Well, then, then let me answer the question slightly differently. Yeah. I think if you have reasonable self-knowledge, yes. you're probably going to be okay without therapy. I think if you actually are unaware of something in your background, yeah. your past that's been passed on to you, and you and you can't see it, mm. but you can see the effect it's having on you and those around you, then obviously therapy is a great idea. But I think if you're you're pretty sure about who you are, why you the, you're the way you are, you, you, you have self-awareness, you should be okay. I mean, not everybody goes to therapy. Um, and well, what are you doing this postcode, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> do you know?
There's a, there's a man coming out of the No, that, we've got the decorations in. Oh, that's not a euphemism, by the way. Um, <laughs> we really have. <laughs> Richard, but I've really loved my walk with you. And I and want to you. ask you... Um, oh, here we go, the killer question. No, it's not. I'm not doing an OJ. OJ, did, OJ, did you kill her? I'm right. not doing an OJ. Okay. It's a sort of nice thing and a... Well, I think it's the sort of shit sandwich in a way, because it's ask a nice <laughs> question, then a bad question, which is... Oh, get on What do it. you what? most fear people saying about you when you leave a room, and what do you most hope they'll say? I've, I've got an answer, but it won't be the one you expect. Oh. But it's the truthful one, and, and, and so... Yeah, it, yeah so I'd, I don't give a fuck, and that's because of the profession I've been in for the last 40 years because if you care if you let it bother you what people's opinion of you is you're never going to sleep at night because being on television automatically means that a proportion of the people watching you are going to hate you it's just how it is <laughs> um, you know there are television presenters who I've subsequently met and are lovely and have become friends who when I first saw them I hated <laughs> we're all the same we all have these irrational likes and dislikes of people in the public eye now, that doesn't mean to say that if someone dislikes me, they don't have a damn good reason. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that to dislike me is to make a mistake. They might be right. But I don't care. It's, it comes with the territory. It's what I always think of as the invisible taxation of being well-known. You're going to attract opprobrium, and equally, some people are going to like you. And it's the same visitor coming into the same room, and you've simply not got to obsess about it. So I never leave a room and think, oh, did they like me? I never leave a room and think, are they talking about me now behind my back? I don't care. It, because it has no effect on reality, you know. Yeah. You just that's a good attitude to have. Well, it keeps you sane. Keeps you sane, not worrying about um, what people think. Have you think. enjoyed meeting Ray? Well, I didn't see much of Ray. He's a bit shaky. This he is, is cold, isn't he? You're cold, boy. Oh, no, I have enjoyed meeting Ray as much as, much as we talked. <laughs> Does he always tremble like this? No, he's no. just. He sometimes he has. Look, Ray. Let's put these sunglasses on him. <laughs> I'll discover. Oh no, that's a picture. You need that's to a, take a photo of that. That's a great Tom. picture. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.